0: What I'm going to try and do is give some general context to the original Palm Sunday and make it relevant to today as uh, we connect the worship we see at the triumphal entry and the worship that we see and know it as today. So in order to get the context of Palm Sunday and the worship of Jesus we see at the triumphal entry we need a little background of Jewish tradition in worship. And we can actually trace worship all the way back to Cain and Abel, where Abel offered a pleasing sacrifice to the Lord. Following that, we see the patriarchs and their worship of God. They built altars, offered sacrifices, made vows to serve Him, and engaged in other practices that were later associated with Israel's regular worship. The Exodus. And the giving of the Mosaic law formalized worship and established its structure under the Old Covenant. And so the Old Covenant worship centered around the sacrificial system. God's people offered sacrifices first in the tabernacle. And the tabernacle was a portable sanctuary that served as a central place of worship for Israel from the time it was built under Moses until Solomon built the temple as a permanent house of worship. After Solomon built the temple, the tabernacle was no longer used. Israelites had to travel to Jerusalem to offer the various sacrifices prescribed in the law of Moses. And they were responsible to go to Jerusalem at least three times a year to recognize and keep the feasts of Pentecost, the Passover and Booths. And that's where we are today on this Palm Sunday Jews from all over the world that's what they were doing at Jesus, when Jesus entered the entered Jerusalem at the triumphal entry they were there to recognize the Passover the ancient, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus actually said that at one Passover there were 2.7 million Jews present in Jerusalem so you can just imagine the size of the crowd that greeted Jesus as he rode into Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday. I'll go ahead and read the text from the Gospel of John chapter 12 verses 12 through 15. The next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. So we see that Jesus comes to the city, and the crowd is waving palm branches, greets him with a shout, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel palm branches were a national symbol for first-century Judea and they were frequently used in contexts associated with the messianic expectations palm branches had been waved about two hundred years earlier when the Maccabees liberated the temple and so their use on Palm Sunday seems to indicate that the crowd expects Jesus to be the promised Messiah the son of David appointed to lead them to independence and this is confirmed by the cries of the crowd which are drawn from Psalm 118, and were seen by the rabbis as words to to be pronounced at the Messiah's arrival. The shout Hosanna means something like, save us now. And we know that the salvation that many first century Jews were looking for from the Messiah was a political liberation from Roman rule. They also spread cloaks on the road, as mentioned in the other Gospels which recalls how people acclaimed Jehu as king several hundred years earlier by placing their cloaks on the Jehu steps. And Zechariah 9 foretells the arrival of the Messiah on a donkey, which we see was also fulfilled on that first Palm Sunday. We also see the acclaim that Jesus received, acclaim that eventually gave way to calls for his crucifixion. And it's intriguing to see just how fickle we are, And the Bible makes it pretty clear. At the teen retreat just a few weeks ago, the emphasis of study was on Peter. And we see him tell Jesus that he would die and lay down his life before he would ever deny Jesus. And a little while later, he goes off and cuts off the guard's ear. And then just a few hours after that, he denies Jesus not once, not twice, but three times. And all of that happened in one night. And so here we see the Jews worshiping Jesus as the rightful king that he is, only to cry out for his crucifixion just a few days later. And it's amazing just how quick that we change based on different circumstances and contexts. It's just like worship. We'll be in here praising God one minute, and as soon as we leave, we're cussing the car that pulled out in front of us at the restaurant. We're inconsistent. So what is worship? Why do we worship? How do we do it? How do we worship the only one that is worthy of our worship? How do we worship him consistently? John chapter 4 verse 24 says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. How do we worship in spirit and truth? Let's begin by defining worship. Worship is the act of ascribing ultimate value to something that engages your entire being, mind, will, and emotions. And now to get this point across, I heard a pastor provide a great illustration that I want to share to help us understand what worship is. Imagine a woman who inherited a piece of jewelry from her mother and her grandmother and so forth. It's been passed down for generations. Nobody knows where it came from or what it is. They don't know what it's worth. They don't exactly know where it's even at half the time. But she decides one day to get it appraised. So she takes it to a jeweler. The jeweler breaks out his eyepiece and starts examining it. And he starts to notice the refraction of the light on the facets. He notices the colors, the texture. And after several minutes of this, he pops up and starts having this labored breathing and begins feeling faint because he is realizing that this is some lost, and ancient, unique piece of jewelry. The craft in which it was made has vanished from the face of the earth. Nobody even knows how to do it anymore. It's unique in its beauty. It's priceless. And the reason he is experiencing such a dramatic response is because he is realizing the value of what he has in his hand. He realized that what he has in his hand is more valuable than all the jewels in his shop, than all the jewels that he's ever had in his shop. And when the woman comes to understand the true value of it, she's astounded and she realizes that she's not been in living, she has not been living in accordance to the value of what she has. Because she didn't understand the true value of it, she wasn't living at all the way she ought to have been living with it. Her entire life has been changed now that she sees the value of it. And that's what worship is. We're called to do what the jeweler does, it starts rationally, it starts with thinking. It starts with looking at who he is and what he has done until it dawns on you the value and the, beauty and, and the beauty of who God is. Most of the people in this country claim that they believe in God. And I know sometimes we're puzzled by that because we know that the lifestyle of those who claim that they believe in God or claim to be Christian doesn't really match up. Take church attendance, for example. We know that after 9-11, church attendance skyrocketed. And we know that most people attend church on Easter and Christmas. People want to be spiritual when things aren't looking good. Or they want to be spiritual when it's convenient for them or expected of them. And why is that? It's because there's a mismatch in their worship. And they're like the woman in that illustration. They claim to believe in God the same way that that woman had the jewel. Completely unaffected, completely unaware of the value of Him. The difference between a limp along life and a transformed life is not just the difference of believing in God and not believing in God. It's worship. Worship is what makes the difference. Worship is an act of ascribing ultimate value to God. Seeing what he is worth and living in accordance with it in such a way that it transforms your whole life. Nothing less. It's not inspiration or a little pick-me-up. It's not just something that makes you feel like you're part of something. It's transformational. It's ascribing to God what he is worth, reflecting on his excellencies, and it's more than anything else that this world has to offer. Now, why do we worship? In order to understand why we worship, we must first understand that we all worship something. Religious or irreligious, we all worship something. The world is divided into people who worship the wrong things and the people who worship the only thing that is worthy of your soul. You're either worshiping the wrong things or the only one who will not distort your life. True worship comes when we recognize where our worship already is and transfer that worship to God and that's what changes your life the average person says I'm not religious and I don't engage in worship but that's not true because we all worship something everybody is living for something and that's how we orient our lives so we all worship something whatever it is is our Lord controls us the person who seeks power is controlled by power. The person who is always seeking acceptance is controlled by the people he or she seeks to please. We do not control ourselves; we are controlled by the Lord of our life, whatever that may be. You have to live for something, and whatever it is, you're so dependent on it. We're so desperately want it. You're afraid of you get freaked out if anything happens to it. Or you're afraid of losing it. You just have to be honest with yourself. It's a re- Your relationship to that is of worship. You've ascribed ultimate value to it, and it's controlling your life. And your whole life is oriented around it. Why are some people freaked out when they break up from a relationship and others aren't? Or they're freaked out when something goes wrong with their money. Person A gets freaked out over love and not money. Person B gets freaked out over money and not love and person see gets freaked out over something else what are they going to do when something happens how are they going to be stronger and happier people they can try the self-help there's all kinds of different counseling and, and uh, mental health you know all kinds of different di- things out there these days that help people cope and adapt and that's great we need that And the Bible says that the ultimate problem is always what we worship It's only when we see that God's love is more satisfying and more valuable and more beautiful than any other will we not get freaked out over relationships. Only when you see that God's honor is more satisfying and more valuable than any other will we not get freaked out over trying to please somebody else. And if you keep getting anxious or responding with fear, nothing less than reassigning or reorienting our worship to where it rightfully belongs to God will make you happy. So now you realize that your relationship to God is transforming. And that's how it changes your life. It's a heart of worship to God. Worship is not just coming and doing a duty. It's something you've already ascribed your life to. If we could perfectly worship God now, we would never be down. Nothing would set us back or get in our way. But our worship right now is imperfect. And we can't worship as pure as we like. But bit by bit, we can grow into a transformed life. So if you're living for achievement and you fail, you'll hate yourself because you never lived up to it. If you're looking for love and never get it, you'll never forgive yourself. This is the only God who is a shepherd. He's the one God who forgives you. He's the one God who died for you. So why do we need, worship? Why do we need to worship God? Because we were going to worship something, and anything else would distort your life. Now here's the application. How do we worship? How can we be more skillful at it? We need community. The Psalms and the Bible indicate that community or corporate worship is necessary. And that's because we don't see the full person in the singular. Because no one individual can draw out the entire personality. You only know someone well in a community. For example, you know person A at work as a cool, calm, you know, collective individual. And then you go out on a weekend, see them outside of work with some other friends. You know, they're like a completely different person. Maybe they're loud. Maybe they're rambunctious. Or someone else you might know is a quiet and reserved person, but when you see them in a concert where their favorite band is performing, or you see them in a, a sport or competitive environment, and again, it's, it's like they're a different person it's not that they've changed or done anything wrong and they're not being hypocritical it's just that you might only know the person in certain contexts and not fully and so you see it's a variety of contexts that reveals the person in different ways And if that's true of us how much more true is that of God so that means unless you're in a worshiping community you'll never really know God as he is the one-on-one with God has its place But it's insufficient. You need a community, variety, diversity to help see the excellencies of God. So the more diverse we are, the better and more accurate our understanding of God is. Now, how do we worship in spirit? The purpose of worship is to come into his presence. And you might ask, but isn't God everywhere? And the answer is, in spite of the fact that God is everywhere, by the Spirit as our mediator, if you understand the purpose and nature of worship, sometimes the Spirit will help you, make you help make us aware of His presence and His reality. Have you ever been part of a worship among a community of believers and you become overwhelmed? Your emotions are full and the experience is unique. You feel like He is present. It's really hard to explain. And I'm sure many of you have been into a church that tries too hard when worshiping. They try to generate the spirit themselves with lights, fog machines, repetitive music that just goes on and on. It's obnoxious when people try too hard to generate the spirit or create an emotional response out of the congregation. If it happens for some people, that's great. But, it's, but you can't force it on people because not everybody's the same and it's definitely not something that we can generate. In John 3, Jesus says to Nicodemus, the Spirit is like the wind, and that's profound because you can't see the wind. You don't exactly know where it comes from or where it goes, but you can feel it and you can see the effects of it. You can see the waves rising. You can see the leaves blowing, the trees blowing. So if you want to be skillful in worship, think of it like a sailor. Sailors don't create the wind. They can't generate the wind. But they are skilled and set up so that when the wind does come, great things happen. Sailors are ready for the wind. They're looking for the wind and they know what to do when the wind comes. And that's what it means to be a skillful worshiper. And What about truth? How do we worship in truth? In order to worship at all in the first place, we must have truth. We must submit to the revelation of God in Scripture. The average person says, I want the spiritual experience. I want community, but I don't want the God revealed in Scripture. There are too many things that I don't agree with and that I can't accept. I want to design my own religion, my own God. So I'm going to pick and choose what works for me. But if you do that, you'll have two results. This is not a living God. If you want to pick and choose your belief system, you will never have a God that will contradict you. You will never have a God that will make you angry. You will have a God that is a cardboard cutout, and He will not be in a living and loving relationship with you. If you are not willing to submit to the truth of Scripture and the self revelation of God, then you have cut yourself off from experiencing any real and true spiritual experience. And secondly, you've made it impossible to be part of a community because you've designed your own interpretation of God that is unique to yourself. You've isolated yourself. Because I submit to the truth of Scripture, even to the parts that I don't understand, that I don't like, I can relate with anybody throughout the entire world regardless of our cultural differences. So if you want to design your own God, go ahead but you will not be able to experience or be part of a spiritual community. You need the truth if you're going to have a transforming experience of worship. Perhaps you've heard this statement by John Piper. He said, truth without emotion produces dead orthodoxy in a church full of artificial admirers. On the other hand, emotion without truth produces empty frenzy and cultivates shallow people who refuse the disciple of rigorous thought. But true worship comes from people who are deeply emotional and who love deep and sound doctrine. Strong affections for God rooted in the truth are the bone and marrow of biblical worship. So you see, it's spirit and truth. It's both and. If it doesn't change you, then it's not real worship. Just an aesthetic and emotional experience. Lastly, we need gospel Sabbath rest deep spiritual rest beyond the physical rest. The gospel is that Jesus Christ came to earth and lived the life I should have lived and died the death that I deserve. Religion says that if I live a good life, God will bless me. If I give God a good life with a good record, then God will bless me. But the gospel, true Christianity says the complete opposite. It says that God gives us in Jesus Christ a perfect record, which is received by faith. So the ultimate rest is to believe the gospel because you will then rest from your works spiritually. You're not trying to live up to the pressure and demands we face every day because we've been accepted in Jesus. So whether you're religious or irreligious, you're working. If you're a moral person or a religious person, you're working really hard to be good if you're if you're religious you're, you're trying to, if you're irreligious and you're trying to live up to your ultimate value you're trying hard to be savvy you're trying hard to be cool you're trying hard to be successful pretty wealthy whatever but underneath it all is the insecurity of saying that if I work hard enough then I'll be good enough and the gospel ends all of that tiring work he already loves you he's already accepted you in Christ and we can rest in that truth One of the primary purposes for God's salvation is to create a people who will worship Him. Everything we do in worship should have some type of biblical warrant. And we will not go wrong if we see worship primarily for God and not for ourselves. Our goal should be to approach Him with reverence and awe. Not to create a worship experience geared to entertain or to amuse. And with the coming of Jesus, and the fulfillment of the sacrificial system many elements of old covenant worship have passed away worship is no longer offered only in Jerusalem but is offered wherever people call on the one true God in spirit and truth and approaching him through Jesus we do not offer animal sacrifices but instead we offer sacrifices of praise as we sing songs and hymns and spiritual songs That explore the depth of our Creator and His attributes. Our worship is centered on Word and sacrament, on the preaching of Scripture, and the celebration of baptism in the Lord's Supper. And every week, here at The Journey, we recognize the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, which is another way we get to express our worship to God. It's a palpable worship experience where our senses are engaged with sight touch, smell, and taste, the spiritual and physical presence meet, and it's a special and unique way we get to worship God. That's one reason why those who don't believe or those who aren't Christians should not participate in communion, because they haven't accepted or believed in the person and work of Jesus. So to worship in communion doesn't make sense for a non-Christian, because they don't believe Jesus is the bread of life and that his perfect life is now imputed to us for our righteousness. They don't believe in the blood that was shed for us on the cross on our behalf as the atonement for our sins in order for us to have access to God. So for Christians, communion is just another way we get to worship God and be reminded of the gospel by placing our hope and finding our rest in Jesus and what he has done and not what we can do. Let's go ahead and pray as we go into a time in worship of Holy Communion. Our Holy Father, please help us see the value of who you are and understand the true value that we have in you, that we may worship you well. may worship you in spirit and truth and that we find our rest. And our peace through the finished work of your son Jesus it's in your name that we pray